Hey, hey, this is your Great Legs dude, Jeff Liskey, coming to you on the Wet Fly Swing Podcast, where we're going to be going rage angler on all things Great Lakes, from gear, fly, big water, and swinging flies, of course. If it concerns the Great Lakes, we've got you covered, so stay tuned to this next episode. Before we get started, let's hear from our sponsors. Established in 1928, Daddy Flies is the oldest family-run fly shop in the world, now in their 94th year. Daddy's mission has always been to supply the fly fishing community with the finest products and services. Every fly they sell is either tied in-house or by a handful of select domestic tires. Please head over to wetflyswing.com slash to grab your in-house flies today. That's wetflyswing.com slash D-E-T-T-E to support this podcast and the oldest fly shop in the world. Today's episode is presented by Jackson Hole Fly Company. Jackson Hole Fly Company is a new kind of online fly shop. They design and manufacture their own high-quality fly rods, reels, gear, and over 1,000 fly patterns. Right now, you can get 25% off your first order. Go to jhflyco.com swing to get started today. That's jhflyco.com slash swing. Let's get into it with our Great Lakes guru, the dude, Jeff Liskey. Hey, hey, everyone. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Great Lakes podcast. This is your host, Jeff Liskey, a.k.a. Great Lakes Dude. I am super excited to do this episode with everyone, including my guest today, who is going to be Randy Gaines. I think it's going to be a really cool episode. He runs Nibbles This Charters. But the cool thing about it is this whole episode, we're going to be talking about the correlation of a tournament fisherman, lifelong fisherman angler, and also how it's going to relate to flies in this episode. Um, Randy, just to give you a little bit of background, he's been a pro for over 20 years. He started out in the bass world, worked his way, caught his first walleye bass fishing in one of the tournaments, and then he really dove into the walleye scene. But in between all that fishing, he got involved and became a national champion archer in the late and early 80s situation there. And then eventually, right around 1989, 88 or so, he got into his first walleye tournament. And believe it or not, he won his first walleye tournament. And then he hasn't looked back yet. He's still dabbling in the walleye tournaments, but now mostly he is doing a full-time guiding up on Lake Erie and all over the Great Lakes for pretty much everything that swims. And um, he's sponsored by, you know, Temple Fork Rods, Yardcraft Boats, Mercury Motors, Offshore Tackle, uh, Beat Down Outdoors for all of his electronic mounts. But I couldn't think of anybody else I really wanted to talk to that had so much fishing knowledge about all species, just not everything else. But uh I'd like to introduce Randy Gaines. Welcome to the show, Randy. Yeah, hi. How are you this evening? I'm doing great, man. Appreciate you coming aboard and chit-chatting all the fishing talk we're going to be doing. Well, you know, you and I get together, we can talk fishing, that's for sure. Yeah, I know. we got this big agenda, right? And <laughs> yeah. it's going to take a, probably about four episodes, but we'll try to make it short and sweet. But um, I'll just start right out. Let's dig into it. Why don't you tell me a little bit about you know what you've been up to you know, lately here and a little bit of background, how you've been fishing lately. Well, you, uh, here lately, I kind of stepped away from the the uh, national uh, tournament scene just a little bit, dabbling in a in a tournament trail here on Lake Erie. But I'm focusing more on my chartering, my guiding. Um, I get a whole lot of uh, self satisfaction out of out of uh, watching people build memories, and uh, so that's that's kept me pretty busy you know, I bought a new place a year or so ago and and built a pond and a barn and so i've got life going on too at the same time so it gets a little hectic <laughs> yeah i'm over here right now we're actually doing the podcast he's got a he's building a lake he's got a barn with all of his fishing gear and stuff in it so he's hardcore fishing but uh you just don't do trolling you just you like to dabble in everything don't you oh yeah you know yeah sometimes in in a guiding uh situation you do what you have to do for your clients what they're used to doing or what's the easiest for them to to achieve success for that day but 
when nobody's looking, I do some really off the wall stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when you really get a chance to fun fish, right? Yeah, yeah. When in that off chance, <laughs> <laughs> right? If everybody thinks a fishing guide fishes a lot, but I go, not really, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, it, it's a, it's amazing. I've held several jobs over my lifetime in some some pretty high level professional situations, and I'm always asked uh, about guiding or fishing. I said, you know what? It's it's the hardest job for the least amount of money I ever did in my <laughs> life, but it's so far it's been my favorite job of all. I just love it. Yeah, it's 365 days a year, isn't yep, it? Yep, full board. Yeah, yeah. Got pretty good wives, don't we? Oh boy, have to. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. That's a prerequisite there. <laughs> have to. But man, we have so I have so many questions to ask you. So I'm just gonna maybe start out because we've had multiple conversations when we get together on the phone. It's going, to, it's going to be like a 15-minute call is usually an hour. But um, I'm just going to say, you know, have you ever used flies to catch fish, you know, in general? Like maybe walleye fishing on a tournament or whatever. Is there, is there such a thing as fishing flies? Have you did that much? Oh, boy. You know, and it starts out. In the spring of the re- in the spring of the year, there's a a fly that is wildly popular on the Wolf River, and actually on the Mississippi and in the northern Midwest, um, it would it would be popular here too because it really works. It's just a simple little streamer, and uh, it's rigged on a on a tandem rig, you know, kind of like you would do a steelhead rig in the river for a spawn sack you got a sinker and and this fly and you just you work it you control it slow holding the rod in your hand or you can cast it like a carolina rig for bass fishing and it is deadly it's a just a simple little streamer it's tied on a number one or two aberdeen hook with just just the simplest small amount of deer hair and it is responsible for some huge bags of fish every spring. Wow. Is it have you ever seen anybody actually cast a legit fly rod doing this, or is it all gear anglers? Most mostly gear anglers. I'm I'm gonna be honest with you. The my first eye shot of anybody casting a fly rod for walleye is you. <laughs> That's because I'm silly. Yeah, no. <laughs> no, I it's it's pretty amazing actually. But you could absolutely do it with a fly rod. You'd need a pretty fast sinking line to do it. Okay. Um, was there when you were fishing two flies at a time, like we do with streamer fishing? Is this how that rig worked? Exactly. Okay. So you have two flies, sort of looking like maybe a crappie rig strung out, like a lower fly and an upper fly. Exactly. Okay. And the depth of water that you're sort of fishing could be thirty foot. Okay. So it's fairly deep. It could yep. be. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And and you just you adjust with the weight okay to how deep you want to fish um fellow competitor um a few years back was using that same little fly with about a half ounce uh egg sinker probably 18 20 inches in front of it and was casting the rock piles on the winnebago system between uh, uh butamore and winnebago in that river in the spring and he was everybody was that was using those flies was dragging them you know kind of like on a bottom bouncer but they was using the heavy weight and they were just pulsing the, their rod tip but he was actually casting those flies onto the rock piles and he just absolutely spanked everybody ah so this is going to get really crazy Everybody want to listen that um, <clears throat> I sort of do the same thing. This is not traditional fly fishing. This is sort of like a dirty rig, but we use uh, my go-to in a seriously windy condition is sort of exactly what Randy said. I'll get my running line or my shooting line level. I'll go on down to a four-foot leader. I'll put a, a small barrel, you know, barrel sinker, egg sinker, and then I'll come off that with a lead with the fly because, you know, there's sometimes – that we're fighting 15, 20 mile an hour winds and we can use that. And we're going to do the old Michigan chuck and duck rig where we're, you know, basically water loading this sinker and throwing it out there. Is it fly fishing? No, but it's what you have to do to get the successful day, get a few fish, you know, when all systems fail. So that's pretty cool, you know, but let's, let's move on to something that we're really going to start to dig into some of this, you know, um, what makes a fish bite? And, you know, over the years, you've been everywhere. And, like, can you make them all bite? 
Like, can you force them to bite? Like, you know, is there something secret or is it just, what is it? How, what's your, what's your thoughts on that? Boy, I wish you could make them bite every time. <laughs> um, you know, it's, I often say when I do a seminar, there's, there's three phases of an angler's career. The first one is being able to catch that first fish. And then your second stage is being able to catch a limit. And the third stage is being able to catch a limit any way and any time that you want to. And I'm still striving to hit that third stage because <laughs> they don't always cooperate like like you'd want them to. You, you think you have them nailed down, but, you know, there's so many things that happens under the surface of that water that we don't understand. You know, there's there's shifts in light and temperature and just things we're not privy to that may turn the fish on or off. He may be full. He may have fed before you got there. You know, it's like going to the buffet and then getting halfway home and somebody saying, hey, let's stop and get a hamburger. That's the last thing on your mind. <laughs> and so I, I don't think you can always make them bite. I think you can tick them off sometimes and you can get them to hit it aggressively, but to bite it, to eat it. I just don't think that anybody's at that level. <laughs> Right. Well, I mean, I would think as a is a at your level of angling as a tournament and all the tournament anglers is that it's the angler that can adjust to the situation the fastest. Absolutely, and and with the new forward facing sonar that we have, it's it's amazing. You start to learn fish behavior like we've never understood it before, and and you can. You can watch a fish. You can watch his body posture and how he's, even how he's just sitting in the water. Is this fish going to eat or is he not going to eat? Are you going to be able to antagonize him or should you just move on to the next one? Ah, uh, yeah, the moving on. Like, that's the thing. Maybe you could maybe give us a few tips. Like, when, like, when do you, like, as a fly angler, you know, we don't have all the luxuries of the vibrations and all the, you know, and live bait. Like, is there a certain amount of time that you would spend like trying to fish then when you say, you know, these aren't biting? Like if we were out we're out in our normal in the lake, we're fishing off of our kayak, or if you have a boat, or even on a stream, is there a certain amount of time that you call like, okay, I'm throwing the flag in? Well, usually I don't throw the flag in until too late. <laughs> uh, but I I'm that guy that we just talked about earlier that I like to think that I can figure them out. And then sometimes I spend too much time trying to figure them out. But you get to a point in, in one's career where when you get on a school of fish, you know whether they're going to go or they're not going to go. And you think in your heart of heart that they're not going to go, get on to the next group of fish the next spot you can always come back and check them because you know you want to get into the lunar tables and all that you know they may have been biting from six in the morning to eight thirty today but with the moon phases and everything that may have shifted to eight thirty to nine or eight thirty to ten thirty you know the next day so it, it always good to go back and check at least i feel it just when i was younger i would get on a spot and i would die uh -huh. I, if i knew there was fish there i would die and it's paid off a lot of times i mean i fished all day on one point for five bites but they were really big fish and i got the five bites but the next day i fished that same point all day and got no bites and the fish were still there where i should have left after a while, after, you know, that just wasn't happening and, and go hit something else and maybe come back. Maybe, maybe my presence on that point is what was causing the no bite. Ah, uh, yeah. I think too, is a lot of times is that, um, maybe you could elaborate a little bit too, is that in a river, you know, we have this captivated audience of a fish that's on some type of structure or some break, but then, you know, the water's always moving. So, when we're in a still impoundment, an inland lake, or up on the lakes that we have, I noticed that you got to have moving water. Like even if it's on a reservoir with a pool and water, it seems like when you get a little bit of moving water, fish just be, seem to be a little more active. Is that true? I, I think it's true in the, in the lake. I, I think in, in an inland lake, it's true. I, 
especially if you know have flat calm as your worst enemy but if you've got some wind and you've and it's moving the water around just a little clump of weeds that sticks out a little bit further than another clump of weeds can the water's moving and it can cause a little current break or a little something they tuck in behind or an eddy where it's going to swirl up some daphnia or something that the minnows are going to feed on and I'm a big current guy. A good example was last fall throwing glide baits, you know, like uh, ice fishing jig and rappellas and, and shiver minnows. The bite was kind of turned off. We'd had some cold, cold weather and it just was nasty. And I started hunting the near shore current breaks. I knew the temperature, water temperature is going to be warmer near shore and i literally had about a week and a half where if i wasn't careful i was throwing my jig on the bank but it was all where the wind was blowing the past little points or a, a pier head that stuck out but that created current and it created a current break and an eddy and a you know in a just a rip in the current and and that's all structure you know all right. It's like, it's so that's what, you know, it's like invisible structure. Yes. Everybody thinks that, you know, you've got to see this water, see the weeds. But if you have the correlation of visual structure with invisible structure, like a river has, you know, it has the seam where the currents are slow to fast, but it also has the surface current and the, the current below. So mm -hmm. people really need to consider that invisible structure you're saying too. Well, yeah. And we see it here on the Great Lakes all the time where, your we call it the bottom speed you you may for example you may be trolling 1.5 mile an hour but you have an opposing current on underneath you and your bait's really only doing 0.5 you know you've lost a mile an hour or it could be completely the opposite your baits may be down there just about ready to rattle themselves apart and you're just barely moving on the surface so yeah that's that definitely there's an invisible and a visible current yeah because when we're so the difference is uh, um when I'm fishing the fly off the boat, what ends up happening is I have a certain speed that I'm trying to move into the wind in order to keep that fly that's that's looking like it's not motionless, where you're doing the same process when you're trolling, but I'm doing a little bit less because we're adding the strip to it. So I'm finding like 0.4 miles to 0.5 miles an hour with a strip is a pretty good canis of me and the angler stripping to catch fish. Mm -hmm. So a typical troll would be what? Like what speed? Well, you know, that's kind of seasonal. I always say good rule of thumb is when the water temperature is below 55, it's probably below one and a half mile an hour. Okay. And when it gets above 55, it could be one and a half to three mile an hour that's just kind of a good rule of thumb smaller when now when it gets really cold in the winter time if, if when we can get out um in that december january time frame and that water is just pretty thick on top but we're still out there trolling um quite often we'll troll 0 0.6 0 0.7 mile an hour just to you know just enough to to make that bait move and that's where the baits like the reef runners and the big big wobblers come in handy because you're going real slow but they still have some action uh yeah so that's still i catch steelhead on the strip but i noticed that when the water starts getting in that cold it's you know there's no haven't been very successful with the fly rod yet but interesting when you have those two different speeds correlated between the fly fishing and then the gear fishing and that's still an open book for me we're still trying i'm still trying to write the notes on that bear vault is one way to assure your next backcountry trip stays memorable epic and safe bear vault builds a rugged polycarbonate locking canister that keeps bears and other wild animals away from your food this in turn keeps your food safe keeps the bears safe and keeps you safe I've got a classic story that I told. I've told a few times about the bear taking my backpack while up in Alaska. I had my lunch and some snacks in there and just went up around the corner to fish for a bit. And when I got back, it was uh, totally gone. If I would have had that bear vault right at that moment, I would have been okay because my food would have been completely sealed. 
the bear would have had no idea and no reason to take my backpack. So a good reminder there. You might not realize it, but this type of thing happens all the time, even to experienced outdoorsmen. The great news for us is now we can experience the great stuff of a remote trip without ever having to worry about animals fiddling with our stuff. Sleep soundly knowing your vault has sealed the deal for you. Believe it or not, food storage is a key consideration while backcountry hiking, fishing, or camping. The Bear Vault also has some great bonus features like the see-through sidewall so you can find your stuff really easy and a large opening plus... Plus, it doubles as a nice camp stool. This thing is is legit. It definitely is one of my, this might be my favorite feature is, is the camp stool. You know, I love a good a good chair out there. Check in with the crew at Bear Vault at wetflyswing.com slash Bear Vault. That's Bear Vault, B-E-A-R-V-A-U-L-T. Okay, back to the show. Let's look at some other things we need. I didn't really need, I have so many questions, but you know, I always wondered, do you know how fast you can retrieve a lure? Like, like so f- stripping a fly, I've tried to figure it out, like how, like, in relationship to, like, a troll speed, a relationship to a boat moving over the water speed. Like, on a spinning reel, we get inches per, you know, revolutions. Have you sort of ever did any math to sort of figure out how, how fast that's moving? Like, this fast we can reel, is it like a mile an hour, two miles an hour? Yeah, you know, <laughs> I struggle with that all the time because I have when I'm fishing glide baits or jerk baits or or something where I'm really ripping. I like like an eight to one gear ratio, and if I was to take those eight to one reels and try to run a crankbait, I'd burn the paint off the side of it. Oh, okay. And so I have other reels five to one you know, reels for stuff like that. But yet I always, I catch myself quite often when, when I'm just trolling, I'll take a spinning rod or one of my bait casters and I'll try to match the speed, say one and a half mile an hour. This is how fast I got. So I sometimes will be counting to myself 1,001 to make a revolution. Right. 1001, 1002 makes a revolution. And I kind of try to dial myself in that way. I come to the belief that if any given fish really wants that bait, you can't reel it too fast. Oh, that makes sense. You can't take it away from me. I have watched 12 inch bass come across the pond at lightning speed before you can even get the reel engaged when when the bait's flying through the air, you know, and you can't take it away from them. An example on Winnebago system in Wisconsin, it's been several years ago, I was fishing a national team championship there, and we were sight fishing for the, the wall. It's something the most doesn't happen very often, but we were in super shallow water. We found some walleye feeding on baby bullheads. The uh, bullheads were nesting, and the walleye were camped right on on the nest. And we were being particular because there's all sizes of walleye in there. And so we were only wanting the larger ones. But try as you may, if one of those little guys decided that he was going to eat your lure, you wasn't taking it away from him. He was going to get it before you could get it away from him. Ah, that's a good thing. So we have the hand, you know, the saltwater rod right under the, right under the, you know, under your armpit, and we're two hands stripping it. But even then, like I say, most of the time, I would think that we, as a fly angler, we can strip fast, but we can never strip too fast. That's compared to a spinning reel now with yeah. eight to one. Yeah, I've seen some of the saltwater guys when they're stripping. It's like holy cow, <laughs> right? You know, Jesse Owens couldn't catch that fly. But, <laughs> yeah, right. But they, so they do. So the the tip of the day would be like speed kills at some time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Perfect. But um, so let's let's dig in a little deeper. So now we're really going to start to dig in there. So when it comes down to when you're what makes a fish bite and you're looking at a lure, we're going to start comparing it to like a fly design or how we can correlate the two together. You know, we've got flash, we've got vibration, we've got color, we've got the size of the bait, we got scent. A lot of times, you you know, we add scent and then the speed. 
talk a little bit about like how you would like choose a lure so we could choose a fly like maybe in a priority like when you see it like how do you do that well first first thing i like to do and it's it's the old adage match the hatch okay so but there are those times when those fish have had enough <laughs> cheeseburgers and they want something else and, and especially if they're they've been feeding and they're full and so then that we've all seen that guy tie on that lure that everybody looks at and goes what are you going to catch with that and then he just smokes a big one and that and i think it has to do with sometimes it's not the norm uh-huh. You know, in in for example, you're standing on a rock and you're casting a DT six, which is a Rapala crankbait, and you're casting, you cast, and you cast, and you cast, and you cast, and it matches the hatch. It does everything, it, and I think you condition. You have a tendency sometimes to condition those fish. And in to yep, that's just the same old thing. And they just it's kind of like, you know, at least for me, my school teachers, you know, she'd be given a lesson and pretty soon it sounded like want, 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 want. <laughs> yeah, you know, the Charlie Brown teacher. <laughs> but but if she all of a sudden switched gears and started talking about something else, she got my attention. Ah, uh, yes. And and I think that I think that happens with the fish too i think i think you know especially in heavily fished areas i mean uh, you know how many woolly boogers does a steelhead see on the rocky river right you know uh, here comes another woolly booger here comes another woolly booger but then then you throw you know something with the a mouse pattern or something at them and they and they all of a sudden erupt on it you know yeah. Okay. So condition that. So you, so you have your go tos. Yep. You start with that, and then yeah. you you can always say, hey. So if you were to pick a lure, and if we you know we have a fly, we usually downsize. Would that be the same thing in the lures? Like, would you say, okay, we're fishing, uh, you know, a number six or a number seven? Would you downsize to a smaller? Would you go bigger? Would you experiment? Would you usually go smaller? When they're pressured, or would you usually, or just say, "Hey, we're just going to get a fish to move and go bigger"? Well, when when the fish are under pressure, I, I I agree. Even for me, and and I give you an example: the glide baits out in in uh, fishing North or Devil's Lake in North Dakota, fishing with the jigging repellers. I was fishing real deep, and the fish were going on the number nine jigging repeller, which is the one out the heavy seven eighths ounce, and that's about what everybody was throwing was that bigger that bigger number nine jigging rapella and and I figured out the day before the tournament that the number five and the number seven was now triggering the bites whereas the number five and the number seven a week earlier or earlier in the week was not it was all about the number nine well they've been They've seen a million of the number nines and been stuck by several of the number <laughs> nines, but the number five and the number seven was still had the action they wanted, but it was a smaller offering. And I don't know if it was as threatening. Ah, gotcha. Stealth it in there. Yep. Yep. Kind of snuck it, just kind of sneak it in on them, you know. But <laughs> yeah, that's sort of what. Sort of, you know, we always downsize. Like we have a comeback fly, steelhead fishing. You know, we say, okay, we got to pluck, we got to follow, whatever we do. Then we'll come back in with the smaller, stealthier fly just to get that comeback. And even on, even with when I'm fishing out in the Great Lakes, I see a lot of times that of just a little subtle change, like you said, it could be all right, we're, we know these fish are not coming up. They're not chasing on that. You know, they're not chasing bait fish up off the bottom. These bass are sort of inactive, static. They're on the bottom. And we'll, it's not even sort of a scale down to, it's just more of like marionated in the area. And with, for me, a smaller fly doesn't, like with you scaling down, I would imagine since that you went smaller, 
it's lighter, but doesn't it change the action too? Like, sure. Okay. Sure. So that fluttering more, yep. marionated in that in that zone. Yep. Yep. There, it it all kind of lends itself. Right. And that's sort of what it is. So like. I once asked, um, I forgot one of the end fishermen, I think it was Doug Stang, how long was like a, a retrieve for a smallmouth bass when it was inactive? And he was said it was like seven minutes is how long he let that lure from the time it hit the water to the time he got it back to the boat because that's how inactive the fish were. You know, that that I read an article. I don't remember. It was it was in the end fishermen, but it's when the the suspending rattling rogues first come out. Uh, yes. And and there was two young guys, and it was in a western state, that absolutely took everybody to school in the tournament. And they were casting the, the suspending rattling rogue. And when they talked to them at the end and they did their article, they were leaving, they would rip that rogue and they would let it set for 15 to 30 seconds before they would rip it again mm, the pause the pause yeah see that's where the only thing that a fly angler has is that is the pause we don't have all the other luxuries of the lures and the vibration but we we can let it hang so if you know if you're thinking about you know we use sinking lines but that intermediate fly line is sort of like the suspending, which our version of would be the suspending crankbait. Mm -hmm. When we pause it, that fly just sort of hangs there mid-column. And it's so hard because I'm a streamer junkie and I love to strip and burn, but it's so hard to let that thing hang. It's almost painful, right? Just how long you let it hang. You know, yep. it, we dead drift poppers. We just cast them out and we don't even pop them. We just let it float down the river and that's probably one of the most deadly river techniques for bass there is. It's just a dead drift of popper or just let a fly hit the surface and don't do anything, right? Because mm -hmm. when, you're, when you're coming down to <clears throat> scaling down the flies and the paws, I sort of have multiple retrieves, but how do you determine or what would be a good way to determine like the candace of the lure? Like, how do, you, like, do I want to work it fast? Do you start slow and work it faster? Do you, what do you do from there? You know, I've always, I've always had this. I would go one, two, three, and uh -huh. then I would pause and I go one, two, one, two, three, one, two, and and then you know it's kind of like dealing cards in euchre, and then all of a sudden you're going one, two, and then one, two, three, and and I'd let it pause, and and in between those two, now then you just gotta let. You got to experiment with that, you know, say, okay, the fish struck as soon as I paused or the fish struck as soon as I started again. So if he struck as soon as I paused, I could keep my cadence close, tight together. Oh, but if he struck at the end of the pause, then sometimes I lengthen the pause out. Oh, that's a great tip because we do exact same thing there. So Let's just review that, just because that was like super good intel. So if we're stripping the fly and it hits closer to the strip more than the end of the pause, mm -hmm. that means they're more active? Yes, I, that's my take. Yeah, it makes sense. Okay. So then immediately then you could shorten up the pause, which means you get more cast, which means the fish are more aggressive. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. So... Then you lengthen up the pause. Let's just say we go out. We're lengthening up our pause and our strip of the fly line. You're lengthening up the pause when it comes down to in between your jerks. your jerks. What happens if they don't hit even on a long pause? What would be the next angle of attack? Or where, where would you go from there? Slow, that? steady retrieve. Slow, steady retrieve. Ah. Same, same lure. Same lure. Slow, steady retrieve. And you would count it down. Mm -hmm. Okay, slow, steady retrieve. And so, would that lure have flash on it? it, it you know, it it depends. A lot of that depends on the water clarity and time of day, and and so on and so forth. I'm I'm that guy that in muddy water is going to probably fish a black bait or a purple bait, something dark in muddy water, more so than a chartreuse or orange is good. I use a lot. I never used a lot of orange until this year, but I schooled myself on it. 
on an orange lure that made me a believer. So I I would pick up on the orange, you know, the, the chartreuses and stuff. But for me, purple, dark purple and black are the best muddy water colors in, in my world of all. Yeah, well, it's pretty much in the fly world, too. If I, if I had to pick a, a fly color, somebody says, oh, Jeff, it's it's high sun, it's at nighttime, whatever, it's going to be black. In black and purple, do you think it's they're almost one of the same? I, I think probably when you get in in the mud or in dark, I think yeah, I don't think there's no they, it's all black. It's the shadow it's casting. Okay, gotcha. And then so would you increase of so the dirtier the water is because this is the one thing that I struggle with and I think all fly anglers do is that we're so used to this, you know. This uh, wonderlust, clear blue water where we can maybe see fish or read the water, but we seem to shy away when the water gets a little gritty and a turbid. But I've I've schooled myself the last four or five years realizing that I can catch fish in some fairly gritty water with the fly too, as long as there's some contrast and you slow down. So do, would you increase the? As it got dirty, would you increase the size of the bait for the profile then too? You know, that's typically been what I would do. But what I, I fished in a, a lake in, in um, out in Kansas, and the name slips me right now, but half the lake was like drinking water. I mean, it looked like your swimming pool. The other half of the lake is as soon as the bait hit the water, it was gone that muddy. Oh, my goodness. And, and I just... I thought, well, there's no, I'm not fishing that mud. That's crazy. Well, come to find out, the top 10 weights in the tournament come out of that pure mud. And a lot of them was fishing uh, over structure with an eighth ounce jig and a three ounce or three inch curly tail in in that absolute mud and so i talked to a crappie fisherman down there milford in in kansas milford reservoir come back to me but i talked to a crappie fisherman there he says he says well what you all got to understand is those fish got to make a living whether they're in clear water or dirty water ah makes sense And, and he says they will adapt. They adapt a lot quicker than what we do as anglers. Uh-huh. And, and, and they may not be using their eyesight, but their lateral line. Mm. And, 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 you know, so you, you start thinking about that, and you're thinking about a fish that has poor night vision but still feeds at night, and they're feeding off of the, you know, the— the electrical signature electrolysis that minnow gives off and as it moves through the water they're feeding with their lateral line so why wouldn't that work in mud as as well we're using uh rattling jigs at that time or no no, no rattling no jigs. just a little just a little bitty eighth ounce sixteenth eighth ounce jig in a in a um in a three inch uh, curly tail in the in I will say probably half of them was using tipped with a minnow, so they had some scent. Uh, and I think I think in, if I was going to talk myself to go into that mud, I wouldn't go in there without some scent of some sort, whether it was artificial or live bait. But it would be scent of some sort. Okay, so that's so. This is the this is the Achilles heel of a fly angler is that when we don't have that scent appeal, do you think adding a rattle or doing something could help us out in what in that in that dirtier water conditions oh sure sure i, I actually um this is a kind of a fly story right um my wife and i went to a cabin in pro falls in ontario and uh, we were headed up there and i had bought two pounds of the biggest leeches that you ever seen in your life. And we got to the the Canadian customs and they said, them's awful nice leeches, but you can't bring them into Canada. Oh no. (laughs) And I, I, you know, I didn't know at the time. And so I thought, okay, I, 
I said, what should I do with them? He said, well, you're going to, he said, walk them back across and see if anybody will take them. Well, I walked into the U.S. Customs site and they were all fighting over them. I <laughs> they were, they were anyway, but I still wanted to fish with a leech or some, you know, yeah. because that's, that's a great bait up there. And it was uh, the, the quality of the leeches were pretty sad in that area. So when we went to the bait shop, I ended up, they had a fly section there. And I ended up, I had some little rattling jig heads, eighth ounce, and they just had to rattle on them, a little slip on, they had the collar that you slid on. And and I bought um, some rod wrapping thread and two packs of black zonkers. Ah, and, yes. And I butchered up a leech using them zonkers and we ended up doing quite well now i did not have the rattles for all my jigs and it was evident that the rattle made played a really really big part of that presentation that's really interesting because i'm always that like you know do i use the rattle do i don't use a rattle i mean you know, we always, we tie flies with the big bulkheads in front to, you know, push water. We say it pushes water so the fishes feels that lateral line, you know, when it comes down to, I have a couple, like, I have two styles of flies, right? We usually say, you know, one's going to be big and bulky and push water. The other's going to be a little more streamlined with the weight, and it's going to be more of that. So what about, like, a lure action compared to a fly, like that wobble, like if a tight wobble to a, a wig wobble, you were talking about the water temperatures. Is there is there like a time of the season we want to like maybe fish like a, a thinner fly compared to like a fly that has a walk the dog type sear? Is that I mean like if you notice that? Well, like, I, I know that in in my world, you know, crankbaits and walleyes, if the water is it's it's interesting because when I, I got to set this up just right. So let's say we start fishing in October 1st and you've had some water going downhill temperature wise. I like to use the wider wobble lure. I'm traveling at a slower speed, but it gives me significant action. The colder it gets, I think the better it is. But at the same time, there's two lures, and it's the deep husky jerk, which will catch fish year-round. But in that cold period, and the rogue perfect tin, the P10 is what we call it, neither one of those, you, there is not enough action in either one of them lures to equal one reef runner. They are just, they just are very subtle. So what really kind of causes me to pause is why is it that this this lure that is really wobbling wide why is it doing good at the same time that this one that isn't hardly doing anything is doing good but yet in the summer that they want something with a tighter faster vibrating wobble and not so much the big wandering wobble or the the do nothing wobble. So you know it's it's really kind of you know to try to put science to it. The, you know it's it's tough. It is. So you so this is you know so you're telling me at one point in time both both styles of lures are work. And I and I found the same thing too. It's like I think it's the I think it's the actual archer more than it is the arrow. A lot of times like. If you sort of know what to do with the lure, mm -hmm. or if you're trolling or casting, or when I'm retrieving a fly, a lot of times, if you sort of know what you're trying to achieve, like am I trying to, like you just said, a slow, steady retrieve? Well, if we just slowly try to swim a fly compared to like strip it in like a bunch of mad rage anglers, I think that's overlooked too. So what you're saying is maybe try both and like you're trying different lures where we really don't have a lot of selection. Right. So it's more going to be the strip problem, right. I assume. Right. Yeah. Nope. It, it's amazing that we're both ends of the spectrum can fire at the same time. Right. 
you know, and there's there's a time in the year when they definitely want a, a certain thing. Now, that's not to say that all them lures will catch a certain amount all the time, but the time of year that they really shine, their action really shines, it is there is there is that wide lethargic maybe that's what it is it's the lethargic part of it whether it's a wide wobble or very little wobble that triggers them into cold water whereas in the warm water everything's going fast you know the bait's moving fast everything's moving fast and, and so that that tighter wobble that tighter more vibrating wobble is is more Gotcha. Because, you know, in the musky game for flies, we, you know, it's a walk to dog. That yeah. fly needs to kick, you know, like a Zara Spook. It needs to go from side to side, broadside, show a nice broadside, kick back and forth, erratic action. Same with smallmouth. Mm -hmm. But there are times that the side to side or, your, you know, with your situation, the wobble, that doesn't work. And especially what I've seen is, is that that's the horizontal movement. But I have found, and, and this is probably something that you've been doing a long time too, is that let's talk a little bit about vertical drop. Like this is what I struggle with, with sinking lines. And maybe we can compare the vertical drop. What makes those, what causes that vertical drop so effective? Just like the pause, what about a vertical drop? Like what's the whole take on that? So I, I've got a pretty cool story. I, in the last couple of years, I've really put a lot of time into bobber fishing, Lake Erie. It is extremely effective, and especially with the forward-facing sonar. I have, they, we've been all taught that fish feed up, that fish feed up. I ran into a school of fish uh, last summer, suspended fish. They were out over deep water. Um, but they were suspended, and I was fishing them with the bobber. I could stop that bobber, you, you, and you could watch them on forward-facing sonar. I dropped that bobber, and, and you'd see them look up at it. You'd see them kind of move up in the water column like they were going to meet it. And then I, that bobber would stop. I'm like, I'm a foot over his head. I'm perfect. It won't be long now. And then he just sat there with no love at all. So I thought, what the heck? I stripped about three foot of line, made it deeper, about three foot deeper. And I dropped that bobber down and I watched that bobber go past that fish. And that fish went absolutely berserk. He turned and he dove down as hard as he could swim and just crushed that bait. And I'm like, that just went against everything we're ever taught. Right. You know, and so you can't, a trend is not one data point. So I started seeking out these fish and, and it took me a little bit because not all of them was at like 19 feet. Some of them were at like eight. So I would have to adjust the line before I'd even cast to them. And if, if that bait went down past them, like it was going to get away from them they would go after. And I think what they thought, and um, I'm matching wits with something that's got a brain the size of a pea and still outsmarts me most of the time. Every day. <laughs> but, but what I think that fish had going on is that big night crawler is right there above me. It's not going anywhere. If I want it, I'll go get it. But when it went past him, he goes, holy crap, where's that going? You know, I better get it now before it gets away. Uh, change of speed, change of direction. Yep. If you've seen on the, the forward-facing sonar, those fish that are just sitting dead in the water, those usually are not fish that I want to cast at. You know, the ones that are moving and active, those are the, they're on the prowl. Those are the ones I get after. But those ones that were setting dead in the water were the ones I was targeting. Ah, the, the, the static neutral fish. The static neutral fish, because it wasn't because I was trying to get a mess of fish to eat or anything. I was, I was trying to make the ones I never can get bite, bite. Ah. And, and I did that by making that bait, and I used a heavy weight. And it just, like, it went 
it was like they're down there. What was that? You know. So how close was the weight to the actual uh, worm? I actually keep it about 18, 20 inches. Okay, so close. Yeah. So it's diving down. Yeah. Interesting. Yep. Did you have, and this will be a good story by my end too, because I'm working on the same thing you're doing, but on the fly angle, did you have like a big a spinner blade or a prop or anything uh, on it? What I what I did was I, I used a uh, number two octopus hook. Gotcha. And then I put a, uh, a rubber uh, bobber stopper sinker snubber in line. And then I put a little prop blade, small little prop blade. And then I put another bobber stop under it. So now I've got a hook, a bobber stop, a blade, and a bobber stop. And I can adjust all that to on top of the hook or six or eight inches away from the hook. Now, if the fish were were a little bit neutral to negative, I would raise it up away from the hook. And and once they turned and went down on it, or even every day when I fish them with the bobber, if they're approaching it and I can just jig that bobber a little bit, because I use a long rod. I use, I use a nine and a half foot steelhead rod for my bobber fishing. And, and I could just jig, jig that line through the slip sinker. And so what I got is I've got that prop that's creating a little bit of ruckus above the bait. And, and the ones that are neutral and negative, they seem to like that better. If they're on the chew, then I just take it right down tight like a worm harness or anything else like that. Interesting. So this is the, the cultivation between the gear and the fly. So I've struggled years catching walleyes, Lake Erie. There's millions of walleyes, but it's hard to catch them on the fly. And a lot of times, we, because we don't have the thin mono, I'm using 25 foot of tungsten. It's a shooting head in the 250 to 350 grain to get down at the depths. And right now we're struggling. But over the last two years, that vertical drop, like you're saying, everybody's used to seven to nine foot leaders off their standard. This I've lengthened up to 12 to 18 feet. Mm-hmm. Super, super long leaders, because I actually think, even though there's so many walleyes, I actually feel like I'm lining the fish, even the drum. I feel like they feel that tungsten, they see that tungsten, and I feel like they're, if they're on the bottom, especially, I feel like I'm lining them. Mm-hmm. And then if I have that long leader, that tungsten comes up. So I've been lengthening out, and I've even been fishing floating lines with 18-foot leaders. It's a real nasty thing to cast with really heavy flies to get that vertical movement, mm-hmm. using that floating line as a, as a jigging motion. But the super dirty trick is that I've been putting really small props in front of my clousers. Mm-hmm. And just that little teeny, that little teeny prop spinning and that clouser falling down, when that thing goes straight up, when my tungsten line and my sinking line breaks up off the bottom, I go up. And it's a painful long because you got to wait to pause. Like you were talking swimming. Mm-hmm. It's not it's not 100% pure as fly fishing, but I will go on record that that has been, just like you said, lights out. Those fish, they actually are clunking it now. Mm-hmm. So... Even though it's not, you know, the fanciest fly, but that's that's still my go-to this lately with that that whole different thing. What about so you got the the slip bobber? Do you find that if it's a little wavier, it's working more? You're jigging it, or is it just it's one of those deals where you're I, moving it, or what? I like it to be a little bit wavy, and then then as the boat drifts, I throw against the current or against the waves. And then as I drift by it, it comes past me and I work it as it comes past me. And if, if it's calm, it's, it's a little bit tougher road to hoe. I mean, you, you gotta, you gotta really, you gotta really work it. And I think that's, you know, the little wind that is always better than no wind. Yeah, yes. Uh, usually, when you were scared to be out there, that's when the fish bite. No yep. one wants to go. When it's right. nice, a nice day to be out, just boating around. Those are the days that uh, I, myself as a guide, I struggle. 
I really do. Mm-hmm. I mean, we get a few fish, but you're praying for a little breath of little breath of fresh air. Yeah, yeah. No, there's no, and and I, and I don't know if that messes with the light refractory or there's a whole lot of whole lot of science that takes place when you get some wind that's favorable. Yeah. You know, we'll touch one more thing. You know, I I mean, this whole new modern thing of forward-facing sonar, I've been using it now for two years. You've been using it probably a little longer than I've had. They've they've came a long way with it. But what's your thoughts, and this is what I've seen, is that now that I see fish following my fly, it seems like I can get them to get on it. But as soon as they get, and I'm fishing pretty deep. I mean, I'm fishing down 15, 18 feet. And as soon as they get up to where the light penetrates, it's like they actually, if I don't get them before that, they sort of just shy back down and get right back down into that comfort zone, like that nine foot, 12 foot deep or so. It's like they're not coming all the way up. Have you noticed that too? Absolutely. Absolutely. The, you'll have a fish coming in in using the forward facing sonar, and I used it a lot this year, casting the harnesses or the weapons that, right. we, that we cast. And you can have a fish that, you know, you you got to keep it moving, and he's just right on it. You think any minute, any minute, and you think that as soon as I go to bring it up, he's going to whack it. Well, you start bringing it up, and there comes a point when he just is like, uh-oh, and he's gone. So it's got to be light penetration. Yeah, I, I think it is. You know, one of the things that, that uh, my tournament partner and I saw, and you'll know there is, we call it the buoy. It's 45 feet of clear water, and and for years you go out there and fish, and and the old saying was it doesn't matter whether you're marking fish or not, you got to fish the buoy. Nobody could really figure out what the heck's going on, why you couldn't mark these fish, and uh, we saw it this year. We saw through forward facing sonar, we saw the fish coming at us, say it. 15 feet down and they got 60 feet from the boat and it's just like uh oh and they turn and go straight to the bottom they swim underneath us and they got out behind us at 50 60 80 feet they come back up to where they wanted to be in the water column and go on so whether it's light penetration or it's the presence of the boat and all electronics. And, you know, I've got, I got more stuff going on on my boat and making noise than, than one could imagine. But, you know, I think they feel, you know, if they can feel a minnow swimming in muddy water, that ping from all of that, ah. that electronics, you know, it, is, is it, so I guess what I'm saying, is it the light penetration or is it us? that causes them to back off. Do you ever shut your electronics off? I do. Okay. So once you sort of get the vibe for it, you shut it off and then you just, because you don't really need anything but your GPS because you know where you're at. Right. right. Yeah. I've been using that a little bit more too. I've been using a side scan to like run 20, 25 miles an hour. And as soon as I mark bait on St. Clair, I don't even worry about marking fish. Right. I just mark the bait. And then I fished a bait, and then miraculously, all of a sudden, you're like you said, 60, 80 feet away. It was like, oh, there's like five or six fish over there. Yeah. Which they weren't there when I was running. Ah, okay. Pretty amazing all the tech, you know, the technology that me and you've, you know, started to go, and it just like it just keeps growing faster and faster. All the things that we've learned and we learned together. But you know, this has been a great chat. I love to keep going more. I think we're gonna do another one. We got Anytime. so much more to chat for, but um. Why don't you tell everybody how they can reach you? Because, you know, you're not only you're a gear guy, you're just one of those anglers, Randy, that I think that they need to spend a day on the water with you. Because if you say, hey, I want to go throw a fly rod, you pretty much can put them on any fish and help them out. So how can they get in touch with you? A couple of ways. Uh, com has my contact information, my Probably the the very best way to get a hold of me is just look me up on Facebook okay. uh, and message me through Messenger or or give me a call. My uh, my number's published on my Facebook page, and uh, you can either look at Nibble This Charters or Randy Gaines, either one. I probably am more uh, active on 
Randy Gaines than I am Nibble Dish Charters. And that's only because I have somebody that's doing the Nibble Dish Charters for me. Yeah. And, and so, I, yeah, no, if you any questions, you know, yep. call me, message me. We'll... I'll talk to fishing to anybody. Yeah, that's great, man. You know, you what you if you Google up Randy's name, you're going to see all of his tournament successes and everything, and how much he's been fishing his whole life. But greatly appreciate you coming on this episode. Uh, feel free, everybody, to reach out to Dave, myself, or Randy. Any questions? Um, any improvements? But greatly appreciate the listen, and we'll catch you on the next one. Thanks. That is a wrap. You can grab all of the show notes at wetflyswing.com. And please follow us on Instagram and share this episode out with someone you love. Please send me an email, dave at wetflyswing.com, if you have any feedback or want us to put together an episode on this podcast for you. Check in anytime. I hope you enjoyed this podcast and would love to meet up with you on the water. We have new fly fishing schools going all year long and all around the country. So if you want to connect, let's do it right now. All right, time to get out of here. I hope you have a great evening. I hope you have a great morning or great afternoon wherever in the world you are. And I appreciate you for stopping by and checking out the show today. We'll talk to you soon.